Has anybody ever asked you a senseless question? I mean, you just kind of pause and you say, what? Maybe they were next to you in class. Maybe somebody had just asked that question two minutes before, and here's somebody asking the same question again, and the teacher so kindly says, you know, that question was just asked a few moments ago. Anybody ever had that happen to them? Yeah, I never have, but I feel sorry for you, Pastor Ferguson. <laughs> You're the one that asked the question? Yeah, yeah. I have some random senseless questions. Is it cruel that the word lisp has an S in it? <laughs> I don't know. Why is there no W in one, but there is in two, but we don't use it? Wait for it, wait for it. There it is. Aha. Wah, wah, one. Anyway. When at the grocery store, somebody sees you and asks, what are you doing here? <laughs> Thought I'd go for a swim. <laughs> I don't know. Senseless question. If the number two pencil is the most popular, why is it still number two? These are the kind of questions my kids ask me over and over and over. Dad, why do my feet smell and my nose runs? I, I don't know, son. It, it. Senseless questions. This morning I want to look at a passage of Scripture where somebody that really knew better asked a rather senseless question. And we find it in Luke chapter 10. I hope you brought your Bibles. If not, there's a pew Bible there in front of you. And so turn with me and join me as we read here in Luke chapter 10, beginning verse 25. And thank you, Spencer, for reading this for us. Chapter 10, verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Please understand, this isn't the type of lawyer that if you get hurt on the job or this happens or that happens, you call a lawyer. No, that's not the same thing. This is a lawyer in the sense that he studied the law of God. He knows the scriptures backwards and forwards. Now, there is no New Testament, but as far as the Old Testament, he knows it and he knows it very, very well. And that's why they asked him to ask the question. This is like the one that has his PhD on the law asking Jesus who wrote the law, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, in verse 26, said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Turns it around. It's a great question. What do you think? Verse 27, so he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, if you look at that, if you look at the footnotes in your Bible, you will see, or you perhaps already know, that this is not just one passage from the Old Testament. This is two, and they have been woven together. And so you think of the scrolls, you think of the Old Testament, and you don't even have chapters and verses, but this guy just pulls out of his memory, of his mind, this idea from Deuteronomy 6, Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he weaves it together 
with a different book entirely, Leviticus 19.10, and your neighbor as yourself. Is that a good answer? I would submit to you that this is a great answer because Jesus himself later on in a different place, and I'll let you stay here in Luke, and we'll look at this one on the screen. In Matthew 22, verse 34, in a different instance, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, this is unity for the sake of bringing down Jesus, isn't it? Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And this time, Jesus' own words on Jesus' lips, his answer is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here Jesus uses this same answer. I would say that means it's a pretty good answer, wouldn't you? On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord with everything, 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 and your neighbor as yourself. And so back to Luke, verse 28. And he, Jesus, said to him, to the lawyer, you have answered rightly. Good answer. Do this, and you will live. Notice the passage doesn't say, know this. It says, do this, and you will live. But then verse 29, but he, this is the lawyer, wanting to justify himself. Do we ever want to justify ourselves? Well, it really wasn't my fault. I'm not the one to blame. It's not me. Why did he justify himself? He said to Jesus, and here we have a very senseless question. I would call it something else, but I'm not allowed to use that word in my home. We don't say stupid. Senseless question. So here we have somebody who has probably memorized huge portions, if not the entirety of the Old Testament, who weaves these answers together, who knows the law. He's an expert. He's a PhD, if you will. And then he asks Jesus this. After answering with the perfect answer, he says, yes, but who is my neighbor? Huh? Who's your neighbor? Now, I don't know if I could have pulled the other one out, but I think I could have answered this one. Who's your neighbor? I mean, who's your neighbor? And Jesus is so kind. He could have been sarcastic, but he's not. And you know how this goes. Jesus tells the parable about a certain man who went down to Jerusalem, to Jericho. He fell among thieves. He stripped. And all these people, and they beat him, leave him for dead, rob him, all those things. And then a priest, and then a Levite. And then finally a Samaritan come by. All these people from the church, they just pass on the other side. All the ones that should help, they don't help. And here the Samaritan, the one that nobody would think would help, what does he do? He helps. That's why we never just call him the Samaritan. He's the Good Samaritan. And so at the end of this parable, that really probably didn't need to be told, Jesus asks in verse 36 very kindly, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? 
pretty simple, pretty basic, but you asked the question, so I'm going to try and help you. Which do you think? I'm going to make it multiple choice. A, B, or C. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. He doesn't even want to use the word Samaritan. And then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, there's nothing here in the story that says he went and he did likewise. My hunch is he probably didn't. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sought to justify himself. I don't know, maybe he heard, maybe he was later one of these that was baptized in the book of Acts, but human nature would probably tend to think that he said, ah, never mind. And before we get too hard on the lawyer, it's not too unlike us, is it? To try to justify ourselves and justify what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. And then Jesus says something, there's a truth, and he says, don't just know it, but do it. And we say, huh? That's hard. And we come up with senseless questions. Well, but is that in every instance? Couldn't this be an ox in the ditch? But they weren't nice to me. They don't deserve it. We come with all these things to justify ourselves and really our poor behavior. Christ's object lesson says this. He was convicted under Christ's searching words, but instead of confessing his sin, he tried to excuse it. We do that sometimes, don't we? It's just a white lie. Didn't really hurt anybody. Rather than acknowledge the truth, he endeavored to show how difficult of fulfillment the commandment is. Yeah, but who's my neighbor? I mean, it can't be everybody. You can't honestly expect. That, ha- that standard is so high. No. Turn to John chapter 3. Here we have another story of another man who also is very educated but asks a rather senseless question. John chapter 3, beginning verse 1, says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I mean, he just cuts straight to the chase, doesn't he? He says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. He's coming at night. Everything's in secret. Knows all kinds of things, but something so basic. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Huh? Nicodemus, really? That's your question? How to be born again? Well, Jesus, how do I? I mean, my mother lives a little ways away. I'm trying to figure out how this is going to work. And Jesus says in verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? Do you have all this head knowledge, but you don't know something as simple and basic? You see, it can become a real danger when we know things up here, but it doesn't impact our life. 
and what we do. And then we have in verse 19, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. I mean, we can have sermons and we can have evangelistic series and, and you can be talking about the 2300 days or this prophecy or that prophecy, Daniel 2, and everybody else say, oh, that's so interesting. That's so clear. I love it. I've never heard these things before. But as soon as you talk about something that crosses over somebody's life and their personal experience that cuts to the heart of any issue, huh? This is a hard teaching. What, what, does it make sense? I mean, you see it from Scripture. I'm not so sure. But, but it said very plainly exactly what you're to do. I'm going to have to study this out some more. Friends, the reality is more often than not, and I'm not opposed to studying it out. In fact, I've told you to do that many, multiple times. But I would like to submit to you this morning that many times studying it out is not the issue. The issue is I don't want to do that thing. I don't want to surrender to that. I don't want to agree that that's the truth. And so I'll ask these senseless questions. Yeah, but, but Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? I mean, uh, how do you go back into your mom? I don't know. But Jesus has these incredible truths for us that will change our life. Not if we just know them, but if we do them. Everyone wants to know what the Bible says until they know what the Bible says. You ever heard that phrase before? Truth is not hard to understand. Truth is hard to apply. That's really the crux of the issue. Understanding, more or less that's the easy part. Applying, that's where it gets tough. And so we ask senseless questions to justify ourselves. Here's another verse, 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come when? In the last days. What do scoffers do? They scoff. What's the synonym for scoff? Deride. Ridicule. Poke fun. Oh, come on. Mock, exactly. Knowing the first that mockers and people that deride and make fun will come in the last days. Walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And then it says, for this they willfully forget. We might say today, conveniently forget. I just don't want to hear it. La, 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 la. But know this, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3 now, verse 1. Know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. And so we're thinking about, you know, bombs and tragedy and famine and earthquake and all these perilous times. But it's not talking about things happening out there. It's talking about things happening in here, in my heart. Listen, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of who? Me, myself, and I. Lovers of money and boasters, and proud, and blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control. 
brutal, despisers of good, traitors, and headstrong in the last days. Haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. They know it, just don't ask me to do it. Who's my neighbor? What day is that community service center open? Oh, I was afraid, and that's a bad day. Can't do it. You need help with that? I, I, I am so swamped, maybe when I retire. A form of godliness, but denying its power. Always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we come and we say, give me something interesting. I want to learn. And we do everything and we take notes. And we're always learning, 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 learning. But we don't ever apply, 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 apply. Oh, you're saying I should, hmm. Well, I guess I could lose those notes. You got anything else? We like to learn. We like to get knowledge. We like understanding. But then when it comes to the application of that truth in my life, Oh, it's too hard. This truth, pastor, is just too hard for me to understand. I can't get it. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And so what is the charge? Preach the word. It doesn't say preach entertainment. It doesn't say preach soft things. It doesn't say preach only things that I want to hear. It says preach the word in season and out of season, and so on and so forth. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I think we could say, for the time has come when they won't endure sound doctrine. It amazes me how people will pick and choose in parts of Scripture and take parts out and reason things away that are such a plain reading of God's Word. Won't endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires. What fits them and their lifestyle don't rub me too much. Because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Notice it doesn't say that they leave the church, that they abandon everything and they walk out. No, no, no. We want a preacher that will tell us what we want to hear. So stroke us, help us to feel good about ourselves, make the challenges not too hard, but never make us feel guilty. Certainly don't preach the word as it is, like uncensored. I want you to just tone it down and make it friendly. Make it palatable. Make it okay. And so it doesn't say they leave the church. It says they just leave a church and they go to another church. And if that pastor is a little bit too harsh, then we'll find another church, another church. And maybe some of the biggest churches around aren't really calling out sin by its right name. In the last days, itching ears. The problem is not understanding truth, but submitting to the truth, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. What do we do with that conviction? That's really the bottom line, isn't it? Do I do something with it or do I just take an antacid or something? three-step process. Pretty simple. Number one, you need to be convinced. God doesn't want us to follow something blindly. He wants us to be convinced. That's why he gave us his word. He says, come, let us reason together. And so being convinced, that takes place in my mind. That's where I have to look at all the scriptures. I have to see what the Bible says on this topic. And then through that, I'm convinced this is what God's word says. Important step. Second step convicted. 
the Holy Spirit starts to get involved and starts saying, yes, this is what I want you to do. Turn from your wicked ways and all those kind of things. So the conviction starts to take place and it goes from my mind now to my heart. And I would say for a lot of church members, this is kind of where the process stops. They come in, they want to be convinced of something, maybe they're convicted of something and they get that little warm feeling inside and then they walk out and they go home and it's business as usual. But there's a third step. After you're convinced and you're convicted, then you need to be converted. And that involves the will. That is your choice and my choice. God has made something plain. The Holy Spirit has convicted my heart. And now what will I do with that? Will I take it in or will I push it away? Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful. Think about the word of God at creation. You talk about powerful. There was nothing and there was something. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, maybe this has lost some of its meaning, but for us today, a two-edged sword, that hurts. That's a weapon. It's sharp. Piercing even to the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Has anybody, this is kind of a gross question, but has anybody ever tried to pick apart the joints and the marrow to pull the stuff off of the bone and some of those kinds of things? I remember one time as a kid, I don't know if it had to do with uh, Little House on the Prairie or what, and I was trying to be Mr. Rough and Tough, and, and man, that stuff just wasn't coming off. You had to have a really sharp knife. And so here, God's word is sharp. It's piercing. And it doesn't say it's going to do all this flowery stuff. It doesn't say piercing even to hair and to skin. No, this is at the core of who you are. And it's going to hurt. And it's the discerning of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. This is personal. God's word, if it's not personal, if it is not at times painful, then I think there's a problem, folks. But God wants to use that to change us and to transform us. Not to just inform us in our mind or, or convict our hearts, but to convert us. Amen. What does it mean to convert? It means to repent. It means to yield. What does repent mean? It means to turn, to go the other direction, to make a change. Sometimes the only other direction we go is we turn around and walk out of the church just like we came into the church. But we need to be convinced, we need to be convicted, and we need to be converted. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, because this process can happen one of two ways. We're going to look at two stories in the book of Acts. I'm going to make a simple appeal, and I'm going to be done. I'm really pushing to be done on time, because I keep you over far too much. So I have a, quite a tab building up, building up. Maybe I can even end early. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Penta means 50. So this is 50 days. After Passover, they were all with one accord and in one place. As we continue on there, Peter starts to make a speech. In fact, in verse 14, he starts a sermon. And I believe there are 26 verses in that sermon, 13 of which, half, are direct quotes from the Old Testament. So what is he preaching? Is he preaching flowery stuff or is he preaching the Word, right? He's got them in and anchored into the Word. And then he says in verse 36, 
Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so he's going through all the Bible, trying to make a, a case for Christ, if you will. And then he finally gets here, and this is his appeal. Jesus, the one that you crucified, is both Lord and Christ. That's a hard message. You did it. You killed him. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So we have all the information coming. Now we have conviction coming. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we do? Peter doesn't say, well, you're hopelessly lost. It's too late. You burn that bridge. No, there's a point to his preaching. When Peter said this to them, he said, repent, verse 38, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What do we do? Well, you repent. They were cut to the heart. It was personal. It hurt. They were guilty. And they said, what do we do? He says, be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And in that verse that we know too well in verse 41, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Wow. They were convinced, they were convicted, and they were converted. Sadly, there's another story that is, doesn't end quite as nicely. Acts chapter 7. And here Stephen has been accused of blasphemy of saying all kinds of things, and so now he is going before the high priest, and he has an opportunity to respond to the charges, and so Stephen starts talking. He starts talking about Abraham, and about Isaac, and about Jacob, and about Joseph. Eventually talks about Moses. And then he starts to talk about how even though Moses came along and you claim him now, initially you rejected Moses. And you're doing the same thing with Jesus. You're rejecting Jesus. And more and more that he talks and the more he gets personal, the more that sword starts to cut, then they're starting to get upset. They're starting to get flustered. They're starting to get bothered. And so Stephen starts to go to the heart. In verse 51 of chapter 7, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Isaiah? Nope. Ezekiel? Nope. Jeremiah? Nope. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of Jesus, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it or done it. You had it up here, but it bypassed here. Verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. But what's the third step? What are you going to do with that conviction? What are you going to do? They were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Why do you gnash with your teeth at somebody? This is a real mature response, to gnash your teeth. Do you know why they're gnashing their teeth? Because they don't have a good answer. They can't say your theology is wrong and the, the verses that you've quoted are wrong and this is wrong and that's wrong. And so now that they see that they're wrong, there's nothing more for them to do but gnash their teeth. 
But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He sees Jesus as our high priest. And then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They're physically trying to keep the truth from entering into their heads. And they ran at him with one accord. The devil likes to bring people together in one accord too, by the way. About 50% of the time, people come together in one accord to try and take Jesus and his followers out. And so they ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him which is totally against both Roman and Jewish law, but they didn't care. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul, and they stoned Jesus as he was calling on God and saying two things that sound very familiar to somebody else on Calvary. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's a converted man. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And into your hands I commit my spirit. Two stories of two sermons, giving information, both cutting, both groups to the heart, conviction, and two different responses. One says, what must I do? The other picks up stones. Friends, the decision is ours all the time. Every time we open up scripture, every time we listen to a sermon, every time we read a book, every time we're in spirit of prophecy, wherever we go and conviction hits, the real question is, what am I going to do with that conviction? Is it going to break me or am I going to break it? Am I going to be submissive to it or rebellious to it? Is it going to soften my heart, or is it going to only harden my heart? I don't know about you, but I I love church, and I love Bible studies, I love gathering together, and I love information. Information is great, but I can be the brainiest person and come up with the best answers from Scripture and be lost. I can know what to do, how to do it. I can have the form of godliness. I can make everything look perfect, but be lost. Because I'm hanging on to that one thing that, well, I just don't really understand. No, you do understand. I do understand. We just don't want to do it. So my question is, what is God and the Holy Spirit, what are they convicting you of? And what are you going to do with that? Are you going to keep putting calluses over it, build walls, rip the page out? Or are you going to say, Peter, what must we do? Repent and be baptized. Yield, turn, change. So don't let it just be here or here. But it is my prayer that when I come across truth, even if it's hard truth, that I'll be converted. That I will die daily. That I'll be able to say, Lord, have your own way with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we won't simply be hoarders of truth, that we won't push away conviction, but that we will allow you to convert us, that we will put our will on the side of Jesus Christ and say, we believe, help our unbelief. Help us to walk in the path that you call us. We pray in Jesus' name.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.